Good morning. Today's uh, this Sunday scripture reading comes to us from the book of Colossians, chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with, his, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him a witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers of Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. One of the joys, but also one of the challenges about... Um, about preaching is um, is being confronted with a text and and recognizing that you are uh, that you fall so fall short of what's called uh, what God is calling us to in passages like this in Colossians. Um, so I was as I was reflecting this week and preparing this sermon, I was just challenged again uh, in the ways in which God's word. Uh, and my life do, do not conform, often do not conform. And so as I preach to you this morning, I want you to know that I have been preaching to myself this week and very challenged uh, by, by, I think, what this text is calling us to. The other challenge in preaching is coming to texts like this uh, at the very end of Colossians. We have been moving through a series on Paul's letter in the New Testament uh, to the Colossians. But coming to passages like this in Colossians, and if you... Uh, we're sitting down and reading the entire book, which probably takes about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, if you read through the entire letter, you would find some amazingly large cosmic claims, truth claims about Jesus uh, being God himself, about uh, resurrection from the dead, about Jesus of Nazareth being the one who created all things, uh, and the reality that he is now he not only has, but is in the process of reconciling all things uh, to God. Amazingly large, huge, big truths. And one of the challenges of preaching is coming to a passage like this at the end of Colossians uh, with a bunch of names and greetings uh, and sort of insignificant little Bible trivia. 
And my first reaction, I don't know if it was yours this morning or if as you read passages like this in the Bible, is this is like pretty boring. Uh, I'm, this is not really that interesting. Um, and that's, I get that. I feel that every time I read passages like that. And there's a lot of passages like this in the Bible. Uh, greetings, um, uh, lists of names. I think of passages in the Old Testament that have genealogies. And they seem, to, they, assume, they seem just on a first read, on an initial read, to be very, uh, pretty irrelevant to our life. Uh, I, do, you, do you sense that? Do you ever have that experience? Uh, is any of this at all relevant? I would make the case uh, that it is. It's, it's supremely relevant. A passage like this in, at the end of Colossians, a list of names and greetings of Paul and his associates and team members in the church, is supremely relevant to your life. And let me make that case. Um, you could ask uh, Carol Goman, who's a PhD. She's an author and, and speaker. Uh, she's written one book on um, the importance of body language and leadership. Um, something that I, maybe I should think about, body language and leadership. Um, I'll talk to Eric maybe tomorrow at our staff meeting about that. Um, she writes this in an article that was a couple years ago released. She said, collaboration has become an essential ingredient for organizational success, perhaps even survival. As organizations move toward more collaborative cultures, a new leadership model is emerging, one that replaces command and control with trust and inclusion. The leader's role is to encourage team members to see themselves as valued contributors, to help them build their knowledge base, expand their personal networks, and to motivate them to offer their ideas and perspectives in service of a common goal. This is sort of like a classic article that you might find on Inc.com or in Forbes magazine. I love reading stuff like this. I'm always uh, curious about what leaders in those fields are, are saying. I love what she says, and I agree with all of it, except where she says that collaboration is a new leadership model. Because if you look at a passage like the end of uh, Colossians, what Paul is doing, he's not prescribing collaboration or teamwork or the idea of a ministry together, life together, but he is describing that. He's not saying this is how you live, although uh, that, he says that elsewhere, but he is describing it. He's actually doing it. He's leading a team of people, and he's showing us exactly how he leads people. Um, I love what Carol Goman says, but that's collaboration is not anything new. It's been going on uh, since the beginning of Jesus' ministry and work and over the course of thousands of years in the life of the church. Let me make the case to you this morning that a church community is healthiest when everyone is sharing their unique stories and exercising their various abilities and gifts in pursuit of a, of a compelling, common goal and vision, namely the gospel, everything that Paul has written about in the book of Colossians. We are all at some level, aren't we, engaged in teams? It's not just at the office that you're engaged in teams. Uh, if you're in a family, your family is a team. If you're in a marriage, your marriage is a team. Uh, if you are in any kind of relationship, there is a pursuit of a common goal, a common vision. 
Uh, so while I'm going to be addressing particularly life and community and uh, the idea of teams within the body of the church, I think this, some of these principles apply to uh, various forms of team uh, and, and, and teams that we're involved with over the scope of our life in our home, in relationships, and in the office. So I want to ask and answer three questions this morning. First, why does God's mission center on teams? Second, what does a winning and healthy team look like? And then third, where do you get the power uh, to be a team player? So why does God, first, why does God's mission center on teams? Well, there's, I think there's, a, there's kind of an underlying directive here at the, at the end of Colossians in verses 7 through 18, and it's this, that church... What we are doing here this morning and what we do of, uh, throughout the week, whether it's in community group or Bible study, um, ch- there's a directive here that church is a team sport. Think about this for a moment. The Apostle Paul, this was, he, was one, he was a man in the New Testament that was one of 13 that was particularly chosen by Jesus. He was particularly gifted with um, with with reaching out into the world with the gospel, he was, he was uniquely equipped to be a leader that would take the mission and the message of Jesus and spread it around the world. The Apostle Paul, he wrote a majority of the New Testament. This Apostle Paul could not talk about the gospel and ministry and life together in the church without mentioning names, without mentioning people, I think about the New Testament and I think, is there any, is there any name other than Jesus in the New Testament that's, that's as significant as Paul, as important as Paul? And the answer is yes, there is. There's Tychicus and John Mark and Nympha and Epaphras. What does that say to you? What does that say to you and me this morning? It, it says to me this morning that in a culture that's filled with self-promotion, in a culture in which everyone is trying to highlight their contribution and get people to notice what they have done, Paul has a model of highlighting the work and contributions of other people. And what the world needs right now, what our community needs right now, maybe what your family needs right now, is, less, is people less interested in building their own name, building their own personal brand, and more interested in building others up. That's exactly what Paul is modeling here at the end of Colossians. Church is a team sport. Paul, the Apostle Paul could not talk about the gospel and church without mentioning other people. And it's just what, like uh, Darian said early in the service, we need other people. The gospel would have never reached the city of Colossae if it was just up to Paul. If ministry and church was all about Paul, the gospel would have never reached Colossae. Your faith, Christian, your faith, your Christianity is not sustainable without other people. You cannot sustain your faith without other people speaking into your life. I've never never seen someone uh, in the course of just my life or ministry who had a vibrant, courageous, humble, generous, self-giving, persevering faith who wasn't at the same time deeply involved in Christian community. 
Let me say a particular word to some of you who may be here this morning. Usually on any given Sunday, I can count on at least three types of people. There are people who are uh, believers, who are, are, are followers of Jesus, who are here and they're in a good, good place. There are people here this morning who maybe are skeptics of Christianity. And we, we always welcome those uh, people who are curious about Christianity, exploring it. There's a third group of people who I can almost always count on being here, and those are people that are, have doubts about their faith, who are, who are questioning the claims of Christianity, questioning if all of this stuff in this book is actually true. Let me encourage you if, you, are, if you are there this morning, one of the worst things that you can do is distance yourself from Christian community, is distance yourself from other people. Your heart is, it will be wanting to isolate and insulate yourself, and that is when your doubts will thrive and continue to grow. You need other people. But team, the idea of team, the idea of God's mission centering on teams actually goes beyond just what we're doing here at Trinity. It goes beyond the local gathering. The church at Colossae was bigger than the church at Colossae. Notice what Paul says at the very end of the passage. You're in relationship with Laodicea. And Laodicea is, which is another city uh, in Asia Minor, in, in what is now modern day Turkey, Laodicea and Colossae were in relationship with one another, partnership. Have the letter that I wrote to them read to you and this letter read to them. Churches are to be in networks of other churches, of other uh, uh, believing churches, churches that hold to the same truth, the reality of the gospel. And we need that whole team. The church is bigger. What, you're, what we're doing this morning is part of something bigger than just Trinity Presbyterian in Orange County and we need the whole team. We need the church from down the street. We need to be learning from the church of the global south. We need, the, we need to be learning and benefiting from and receiving insights and the gifts of people in the church in places like China and Brazil and Nigeria. And we also need the church uh, historically. We need the church from the last century. We need the church from the 16th century. We need the church from the 3rd century. Our faith needs to be informed by the Catholic Church, by God's global mission in the world, uh, the church historic and the church around the world today. Why? Because as, um, as an instructor in a workshop that I least, uh, recently attended on organizational leadership in the church recently said, he said this, perhaps you've heard it, none of us is smarter than all of us. None of us is smarter than all of us. Why is that? Why is church a team sport? Why are we to live together? Because of this great reality that's at the heart of Christianity, that God is one God in three persons. He's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were made in the image of that God. We were made to partner with other people, just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit partnered together to work together, to accomplish the shining dream of living together in harmony with you, you were made in that God's image, made to be part of something bigger than yourself, made to give your gifts and your abilities and your contribution to something bigger than yourself. Why does God's mission center on teams? It's also because of this. 
because this idea that we have in our culture that, that there's this hero leader, uh, this, this one person who has all the gifts and all the knowledge and all the power and all the resources is actually a myth. Because if you read through Colossians, you realize that there is only one person in the entire universe with all of the knowledge, with all of the resources, with all of the skills, with all of the ability to accomplish his vision, and his name is Jesus. And you, are, you and I are not him. So the idea that there is a hero leader or a celebrity person who can lead a movement or a team or an organization into success, it's, it's Jesus. That's the person that we are all following. We are all a part of his team. There are no heroes here at Trinity. There are only people. And it's precisely people with names like Tychicus and John Mark and Epaphras, and Archippus, flawed people, broken people, stumbling and imperfect people who are, who are of infinite value in God's kingdom and economy. So friend, let me tell you this morning, you are more valuable to what goes on here and what happens in God's mission around the world than you could possibly ever know. Do you hear me? You are more valuable to God's mission in the world than you could ever possibly know. And if you're hearing me, that apply, this text applies to you. It's relevant to you. That's why God's mission centers on teams. So what does a winning and healthy team look like? Well, uh, I think a winning and healthy team is characterized by three things. Uh, and I'll, I'll say them up front and then we'll go through each one. First, uh, a healthy winning team uh, is a team that uh, first goes deep, a team that goes wide, and then a team that gets real. A team that goes deep, goes wide and gets real. A team that goes deep. Notice the language that Paul uses at several places in, uh, in this passage in Colossians 4. Uh, it's language that um, of familial unity. Darian said earlier in the service that one of the metaphors that, is, that, that the New Testament uses to describe the church is that of the family. Look at Paul, apply it here. Verse 7. Tychicus is a beloved brother. Verse 9, Onesimus is a beloved brother. Verse 15, uh, greet, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. What is Paul getting at? You have to understand Paul's context in the ancient world. Nothing, nothing in the ancient world geared towards the unity or, or the idea that the playing field would it all be level, uh, that the playing field of life would it all be level. Nothing in the ancient world supported that, encouraged that, fostered that. In fact, everything in ancient society was designed to segregate people, was designed to reinforce class distinctions and gender distinctions. But in the center of Christianity stood a cross that shouted out to the world, all are welcome. All are welcome. At the center of Christianity was a cross that said, at the foot of this cross, the ground is level. And it doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, a child, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, citizen, refugee, Jew, or Gentile, that old system of power and honor and dominance is done. Jesus is doing a new thing, and that new thing is making a family out of the most unlikeliest of people. Friends, have we even begun to tap the, that reality? 
there are people here this morning who grew up in families, biological families, that were dysfunctional, in which maybe the father figure was absent, or maybe they, they had parents that didn't offer support and encouragement and didn't fill you with life and joy. There are people here who, who don't have children, who have tried to conceive and it's not working. Do you realize that this, this place, you and I together, are family? Do you know what it means to find someone in the church who can speak life into you like a good parent should? I found that here. I found that at Trinity. With older men who will come and encourage me and speak life into me. Do you know what that's like? It's beautiful. It's amazing. Do you know what it's like to be that person? To be that father in the faith, that daughter in the faith, that mother in the faith, to take that role, to assume that responsibility, to bear that cost. That's an amazing calling. And I wonder if we've even begun to tap the surface of it. Teams go deep. They're characterized by familial unity, but teams also go wide. They're characterized by a rich diversity, a variety of people and gifts and work. Notice who Paul is interacting with, who he's mentioning by name. He's mentioning men. He's mentioning women. Look at verse 15. Nympha. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Paul and early Christianity utilized the leadership ability, the gifting abilities of men and women in a culture in which that largely was not available to both genders. He also includes uh, the rich variety of educated and uneducated, blue-collar, white-collar, rich and poor, Onesimus, In verse 9, Onesimus is a runaway slave who's traveling back with Tychicus to confront his master. Onesimus is a runaway slave, but Paul says his new identity is in Christ, and that's specified, it's highlighted. Luke is a doctor. He's a research historian. He's white-collar. He's educated. Paul utilized both of these men and their giftings. His mission, his team, involved Gentiles and Jews. Look at what he highlights in verses 10 and 11. Aristarchus, John Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice. They're all specified as Jews. It implies that the rest of the people in that group and and probably the, 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 the majority culture in Colossae is Gentile. Paul is saying to us, he's describing to us that his mission, his team was characterized by people from a rich diversity of life, from different gender, class, race. Teams go wide, but teams also get real. Teams get real. What do I mean? Teams in the church and healthy teams, healthy functioning, winning teams are characterized by a mutual accountability and transparency. Where am I getting that? Two places in the text. First, in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. I read over something like that and I say, I I don't even think about it. 
And then I go back and say, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Look at the kind of leadership style that Paul has. It's one of transparency. Paul is saying, here's what I'm up to. I'm not hiding the knowledge. I'm not hiding what's going on behind the scenes. I'm being totally transparent. Tychicus will tell you about all of my activities. Then in verse 17, say to Archippus, fulfill your ministry that you have received in the Lord. We don't get anything else. Scholars go back and forth. What is he talking about? Who is Archippus? What's going on? What is the ministry? What does he need to fulfill? Uh, it's, It's sort of ambiguous. We don't entirely know. But there's this, I can't help read that with the tone of sort of like, hey, Archippus, you had this job. <laughs> do it. You need to do it. There's a, there's a culture of accountability and transparency. We live in a culture of self-protection. We want to be left alone. We want people to mind their own business. Don't tell me how to live my life. See what Paul is encouraging? He's encouraging the exact opposite. Paul kept people in the loop with how he was doing personally, spiritually, professionally. Who is in your loop? Who knows the real you? There's something going on right now in your life. It may be, a, it may be something huge. You may be uh, having massive trouble at work. Your marriage may be falling apart. Your relationship with a child could be totally broken and dysfunctional. It may be something small. There's something going on in your life right now, and Paul is saying in this text, by describing what he's doing, he's saying, don't wait. Don't wait to be transparent. Don't wait to be approached, to be accountable. Initiate that conversation. Who is, who is that person that you need to call this week and say, hey, let's, let's grab a beer. Let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's grab breakfast this, this week. I want to share with you what's been going on in my life. I want you to pray for me. Who are you accountable to? Think about Archippus. We love this idea in the modern world that sort of we are free from all restraints, all authority. And that idea is a sham. It's not actually true. All of us live under some kind of authority. So who is over you? Who's challenging you? Who's rebuking you when your life is headed off the rails? Who's supporting you and loving you and bringing you back to gospel realities? Reminding you that you're loved and beautiful in Jesus. Who's willing to say to you, see that you fulfill your ministry in the Lord? Do you have a person like that? I hope so. Uh, ideally, teams, right, they, they, they go deep. They're characterized by familial unity, by people being brothers and sisters. Uh, they also go wide. They're characterized by rich uh, diversity and variety and gifts and people and uh, education and learning styles. Uh, they also get real. They're characterized by mutual accountability and transparency, both from uh, people in the community, but also the leadership. They're ideally composed of ideal team players. 
which is the title of one of my favorite books. Uh, Patrick Lencioni is an organizational consultant. Um, he's, he happens to be a believer as well, and he, he's written a number of books. I love them. Um, I'm always learning from them. And in 2016, he wrote a book called The Ideal Team Player, in which he says that the ideal team player is characterized by three, uh, three different characteristics. They are humble, they're hungry, and they're smart. This is what he says. He says, a humble team player has little ego when it comes to needing attention or credit for contributions. They're comfortable sharing accolades or occasionally missing out on them. They're humble. They're also hungry. They work with a sense of energy and passion with personal responsibility, taking on what they can for the good of the team. And then third, they're smart. Not, he's not talking about intellectual smarts. He's saying they, ha- they say and do things that help teammates feel appreciated, understood, and included, even when difficult situations come up that require tough love. At the end of the book, it's really interesting. He says, uh, he says profoundly that actually... Uh, Jesus is the perfect model of, of these characteristics. But you also see Paul, right? Paul is somebody who's humble, who's not boasting about his own contribution, but saying, hey, look at Tychicus. Look at Aristarchus. Look at John Mark. Look at Nympha. Let's celebrate them. Let's take joy in what they're doing. He has no ego. He's also hungry. He's working with a sense of passion and energy. In fact, he's imprisoned. He's in chains for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. And he's smart. He knows how people operate. He knows how to make people feel appreciated and understood and included. Team players are humble, they're hungry, and they're smart. And as I was thinking about it this week, there's also three things I think that a team player says over and over again, whether it's in a community group, whether it's in a ministry team, whether it's in a family or a marriage or a friendship, there's three things that a team player should be saying all the time. First, I need help. I need help. I can't do this alone. Second, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Third, you, not me. You, not me. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to build you up. I'm here to contribute to your life. I need help. I'm sorry. You, not me. That's what a team player says. That's what a winning and healthy team looks like. And that's, it's huge. It's a significant weight. Where in the world do you get the power and the motivation and the passion and the energy to pursue teams like that, to be that kind of a team player? And friends, the answer is in the gospel. The answer is in, it's in exactly what Paul has been unfolding for the last three chapters. That Jesus, who is the very image of God, who was the king of the universe, he stepped off that throne, he stepped down off of that throne and became a servant of all. He was crucified on a cross. He became treated as the worst kind of slave, nailed to a cross. Why? To build others up. Not for his own ego, but to build up the life of other people, to make their life flourish. Jesus was the supreme example of humility, stepping off of his throne and onto a cross. Jesus is also the supreme reconciler. He's the supreme bridge builder. 
He's the person who goes into any relationship and allows people, gives the motivation for people to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. How? Because if you know that Jesus loves you so much that everything that you've ever done wrong has been dealt with at the cross, that all of the griefs and sin and weight that you carry has been nailed to Jesus' cross, then you know that you can go to a friend, to a brother and sister, to anyone in your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, and you can say, I'm sorry. Because that sin has been dealt with. You don't need to hide from it. You don't need to run from it. You don't need to cover it up. Jesus is the supreme reconciler. He's the one that makes teams happen, that makes life together happen, and he's also the supreme servant leader. He is the supreme team leader. I love how Patrick Lencioni says, Jesus, you would talk about humble, hungry, and smart. There's no one better than Jesus. He's the servant leader who who looks after your interests, not his own. Who says, you know what, I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to share my ministry with 12 guys who are a joke, who are flawed and imperfect and messed up people, and they're going to extend my kingdom in the world. Jesus is the supreme example of a servant leader, a team player, who says, you know what, it's not about me. It's not about me. What I'm going to do for these people in reconciling them and rescuing them is bring them into a kingdom of everlasting joy to experience, share my resources, share my joy for all eternity. Let me close with this. There are a couple of applications. Let me close here. There are names in Trinity right now. There are people, there are names in whom God wants you to be investing right now. They could be your kids. It could be a coworker. It could be a neighbor. It could be someone sitting right next to you in the pew this morning. It could be somebody in your community group. Who is it? Who's God putting on your heart this morning? Hold that person's name in your mind for just one minute. Who are they? What's their story? What could God possibly be doing by interweaving your story and their story together? And will you rise to the occasion to be that person that ministers to that name, that person? There are names and there are needs at Trinity right now. There are needs right now, not next week, not in the fall. Not once your life, my life gets less busy, but now. And some of you have the communication gifts, the financial planning gifts, the interpersonal gifts, the teaching gifts, the discipling gifts, the musical gifts, a whole host of gifts that we need in this place right now. And don't you know that if you're not exercising them, you're not living life to the fullest? They often say that a community um, like ours, any church community, is... Uh, sort of statistically speaking, composed of uh, 20% of the people who do 80% of the week work. Do you know what it's like to have 20% of your body operational? I don't want to find out, personally, at least for me. There's a cost. Sure, there's a cost. There was a cost to Tychicus in the first century. 
Do you think that carrying a letter from Paul to Colossae across oceans and rugged terrain and inclement weather was cheap or easy? I know I'm laying it on thick. Volunteering at a church often just means you have to wake up 30 minutes earlier on a Sunday or host a community group a couple times a year in your home. I'm not asking you to travel around the world. Not yet, at least. Where do you get that power? I've already said it's from Jesus, but let me close here with a, with a, a fascinating detail that you can skim right over as you read through the Bible. The name John Mark. The name John Mark. You see his name in verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Paul says, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Fascinating little detail. Do you know who Mark is? He comes up several places in the New Testament in really peculiar ways. First time you see him is in Acts 12, the book of Acts in the New Testament that Luke wrote. Uh, And Mark is described as a person uh, in whom the early church met in in his house, actually. Uh, Peter is released from prison and in Acts 12 goes back to the home of Mark, John Mark. In Acts 13, Mark, this same Mark, engages on a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, one of the first mission, or the first mission trip of Paul and Barnabas. It was this sort of new movement that God was doing in the life of the early church. And uh, through Paul and Barnabas, the gospel was going to advance into new territory. And John Mark went on that first mission trip, and halfway through the mission trip, he decided to go back home. He gave his mom a call and said, come pick me up. Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas in their time of need. Actually, it's interesting, right before uh, they begin to face persecution and suffering. And in Acts 15, later in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas, who were colleagues in ministry and wonderful friends, ended up having a rift in their relationship because Barnabas who was Mark's cousin, wanted to bring Mark on another journey with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul said, no way. I'm not having that guy on my team. Do you remember what he did last time? He deserted us when we needed him most. He deserted us when we needed him most. Well, scholars debate, but maybe 10 years has passed between that episode and Acts 15 where Paul said, I don't want this guy on my team. Do you know who he is? In Colossians 4, where, you know what Paul says? He's a fellow worker for the kingdom of God. He deserves your welcome. If he comes to you, welcome him. Do you know what that is? That's grace, friends. That's Paul saying, I worship a God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will never desert me who will never quit on me. And so even if friends betray me, even if teammates desert me, I know Jesus will never desert me. I know he will never give up on me. And you know what that says to John Mark? Even if you're a quitter, even if you failed, not just on a team, but in life, in your marriage, at your work, in your relationships, Even if you have failed, God's grace is bigger than that. Jesus will never quit you. His grace will always be with you. You may have failed and quit in the past, but Jesus says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you.
you should read that right into verse 18. Grace be with you, because that's grace. Amazing grace, extravagant grace. Every team, every family, every family, every relationship, every church needs to center on that truth, on that reality. You need to know that you are fully and freely loved forever by a Jesus who will not quit on you ever. You're part of his team, so don't give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book in, in uh, this letter in, to the Colossians in the New Testament. Amazing, amazing truth given to us, supremely relevant for our life. Thank you that you have brought us into your team, a team that has existed from forever, the team of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that you have actually invited us in to share that joy, to share that responsibility and calling because you wanted to share happiness with us. And you made that possible by the bridge-building, reconciling, gracious work of Jesus. We love you, we thank you, we praise you. So open up our lives to teams, to life together, to, to deep community, to authentic community, accountable community, community that represents more of just our own personal background or class or education, but people who look and act and think different than us. Help us to be brothers and sisters in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.